This is Top Floor, episode 79. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 79. Welcome to Top Floor with Susan Berry. This weekly podcast ride up to the top floor features tangible tips and excellent stories from the experts and characters who elevate hospitality. And now your host and elevator operator, Susan Berry. Welcome to the show. Madison Rifkin earned her first patent at age 15 for a bike lock she invented when she was 12. After finishing up high school, she found some business partners in college and stood up a supply chain needed to manufacture and sell the lock. This led to Maddie dipping her toe into the micro-mobility industry through rental scooters, which ultimately drove her company's pivot into the short-term rental space as CEO of Mount. Today, Maddie and I are going to talk about founding a startup as a teenager, making travel more experiential, and running a completely work-from-anywhere company. But before we do, we need to answer the call button. The emergency call button is our hotline for listener questions. If you would like to submit a question, you can call or text me at 850-404-9630. Today's question was submitted by Luke. Luke is very simple. Luke wants to know how long it takes and how much money it costs to get a patent. It's a great question, Luke. Um, <laughs> My recollection, because I was 12 when this was happening, it was a three-year-long <laughs> three process because I got the grant to get the patent when I was 12 um, and worked with a lawyer to submit it. And that wasn't the long process. The long process is just waiting because the government is very backed up. I think now because of COVID even more so. Uh, so it might be a three to five-year process, but that's about how long it took. As for cost, I actually am not an expert on that that question or topic because my patent was fully funded by the award I won. Um, so they covered all the expenses. <laughs> gotcha. So I was going to ask you a follow-up question about that. Why get a patent? And it makes sense because why not at that point? I think it's pretty arduous and expensive a process if you're just trying to drive that bus yourself. But if it comes with an award, who the heck cares? You might as well do it, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> I don't know a lot of middle school kids who are inventing and patenting products. How did it come to pass? How did you invent this, build it, and sell the bike lock that you came up with? So I was fortunate enough to go to a middle school uh, that had an invention program as an extracurricular. So like after school, before school, uh, you worked with I guess they were like engineering teachers, but I think they were just math and science people who basically taught you, you know, what you needed to do to invent a product. And it was mostly hardware because at that time, apps were pretty new and no one knew software engineering as a 12-year-old. Um, so they're like, here's some power tools, go invent. <laughs> <laughs> so my parents were thrilled. Um, no, but basically I had always been forgetting my bike lock. I just am inherently a forgetful person, but again, I was 12, so very forgetful. Mm -hmm. And I biked everywhere. I was from Colorado, so very outdoorsy state. Um, and I was like, it's just so simple. Why is the bike lock not a part of my bike? Like it just, it, sh it should be. And I was like, I can fix that. Um, so that's exactly what I did. And that's where the idea came from is just me wanting to 
basically pull the bike lock out of the the frame of the bike and they gave me the resources to do so. So it was nice. Okay. So the lock itself was bolted on or built into the bike frame so that you couldn't lose it. Is that exactly the basic yeah, it was, premise? I, I think I tried to weld it on, but that was one of the power tools they wouldn't give us. <laughs> uh, so I, I zip tied it on, I think it's like a prototype. But yeah, no, it was, the premise was it was part of the bike. And as you manufactured the bike, you were going to have the lock now a piece of it and uh, retracted like six feet. It was actually pretty cool. <laughs> oh, that is cool. Do you still have any? Uh, I think I have the original. Um, nice. Somewhere in my garage. And I have so, some of the newer prototypes too, but yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, you better keep it because I have no doubt there's going to be a museum exhibit dedicated to you in the future. So you were in college setting up the supply chain to manufacture the lock. Do you think that that experience impacted your degree program, your studies? <laughs> what I'm trying to figure out is... You know, you're in class with these professors sort of teaching the theory of creating a business or, you know, doing something along those lines. And you were actually doing it. Were your professors intimidated? Did it hurt or help you in any way? What was that experience like? No, so actually very good experience. Um, So I, I went to Northeastern University in Boston to study entrepreneurship. That was the reason I went. And funny story... My college counselor told me not to go to Northeastern because anyone that went there would become a CEO. And I was like, well, that's what I want to do with my life. <laughs> I was like, sold. Um, so that was why I ended up there. But yeah, basically, I knew I wanted to start a company. And so I was taking classes that very much aligned with what I needed to learn to start Mount. So I was building the business models in class for my own company, but I was turning in the work as an assignment. So it worked out really well. Um, I just, I think I work smarter, not harder. So. Got it. So you sort of got double credit for everything that you were doing. Yeah. And a lot of my professors, like my first ever professor that was helping me, Mark Bernfeld actually is an advisor to Mount now. He's an investor as well. Um, so a lot of the teachers and professors had like very deep entrepreneurial background. One of my professors, I, I don't know if this is true. I never fact checked him, but he did tell me that he helped invent the disposable orange like Polaroid camera. That is not even around anymore. Oh, wow. I thought you were going to say that he invented the post-it. Have you ever seen that movie, <laughs> Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion? And they're like all flustered. So they're like, oh, my dad invented a post-it. No, no, he did not. Mount has gone through several iterations. After starting as a bike lock company, you moved into micro-mobility with some rentable, I think a fleet of rentable scooters. What drove that? What made that happen? So I think honestly, it was what I was learning in class and it was it came down to product market fit. And I, I kind of say the story of our lock was the story of the Apple Watch because like we invented a lock that actually wasn't necessary or needed. Like bike locks have been around for years. They're great. They work. Why need a new one? And <laughs> that's actually what we found. Like our consumer was like, why would I pay 150 bucks for this? I don't need it when I can get one from Kryptonite. Um, so it was just basically in our efforts to find product market fit, we just kept pivoting. And I was like, let's find a semblance of product market fit with the lock. Where did that lead us to scooters? Because they didn't have a lock. They needed one. They actually needed one that was retractable because there's no space on a scooter for a lock anywhere. Okay. Um, and so that's why we ended up there. Then it needed IoT, GPS tracking. So that kind of dove us down the software realm. And it was just all these little decisions slash pivots to find product market fit that led us kind of deeper and deeper uh, into these various markets. 
and eventually kind of where Mount is now. Did you have to buy a bunch of scooters to test out how the retractable lock? Like, is that how you ended up with the physical inventory of scooters? That is how it started. Yes. Because we, yeah, one of the scooter companies we were building for sent us one of theirs so that we could have like the dimensions and stuff. And then I just had fun riding it around uh, as we were <laughs> testing the locks. So I'm like, oh, let's get more of these. And so got a few more from a different scooter company. And that led us to then put those at Airbnb properties. And then, yeah, it just kept evolving and growing. <laughs> right. So now Mount helps short-term rental hosts create additional revenue streams by renting out things like scooters or golf clubs, kayaks, beach chairs, all that stuff. Can you talk about the transition to rentals then? Yes. So when I was helping uh, the big scooter companies with their locking infrastructure and, and just figuring all of that out, one of the main reasons why they went through so much capital, like they are notoriously known for burning millions of dollars, it's because they had to purchase all the scooters. They would last a month and then they'd have to replace them. Like it was just a, a vicious cycle. And so when we made the pivot, when we were, had some scooters, I was like, I need to build a business that doesn't have Mount owning the scooters <laughs> because there's a world in which that that happens. and. We were working with some Airbnb hosts at the time. This is right in the middle of the pandemic. I was in Colorado just driving these things around. Um, and the Airbnb host, as a customer, consumer type, was struggling because they had previously made all of their revenue from bookings, like 99%. And then COVID hits, people stopped traveling. They lost a majority of their bookings, upwards of 50%. And then when we showed up with these shiny scooters, they were making more money off of uh, their guests that were actually coming. And they were making some of that revenue back that they had lost. Oh, so you were sharing your scooter inventory with the short-term rental hosts. Yeah, because I, I, I just wanted to see what happened. And, and that was really the key that was unlocked. It's like, okay, the guests want the scooters. They're willing to pay, you know, as you do when you travel. Um, and the Airbnb host really had no way of offering the scooters other than using Mount. But I also accidentally became a scooter operator for like a hot minute and I did not like that. <laughs> <laughs> so walk through an example of how the host, a short-term rental property owner, would use Mount now. Yeah, so that, that marked our final pivot. We ditched the scooters, became a software platform. Because the Airbnb host actually already had this stuff, they just needed software to enable it. And that's what we became. So... Now, an Airbnb host that was previously offering to kayaks or just not offering them because they didn't know how can use Mount to order a QR code GPS tracker. They stick on the kayak. They lock it up with a, a door lock, a cable lock, whatever they want to do. And when your guest shows up, they use the Mount app. Uh, so they scan the QR code as if you were renting a scooter, but now it's a kayak. And it uh, asks them how they want to pay for it by the hour, by the day, by the stay. Uh, and then they, they choose and it'll give them the unlock combination. So now they have access to the kayak and they get to use it, have fun. They're paying for it, do whatever they want with it. And then to end their rental, they do have to come back within that little invisible fence parking spot, lock the kayak back up, and, and then it's ready for the next person. And so same is true then for a traveler. If I download your app, then I see a QR code like stuck on the refrigerator when I check in and can see what the inventory is. Is that how that works? No. So actually, the when you open the app, you'll see a map and it populates with the inventory in little bubbles. So you can... If your Airbnb host doesn't have anything next door, might. So you can actually rent their amenities. Oh, that's cool. Um, but all the QR codes are on the actual amenities. So you'd find a QR code on the bike. It would be on the golf cart, the golf clubs. Uh, so each QR code is a different amenity. <laughs> Understood. Where did the name Mount come from? You know, it's a funny one. So 
Mount in itself does not have a lot of meaning in the core business, but it's more of an ode to Colorado because I'm from I'm from there. I grew up in Denver. I'm a big skier, snowboarder. And so I was like, oh, yeah. And when people ask me what the name is, I'm like, it's half a mountain. Mount. <laughs> I got it. I thought it was because the lock was mounted on the frame of the bike, which also makes a little bit of sense. Also does. But it also makes more sense why you didn't change it after you quit being a bike lock company. Absolutely. And the, the other reason we didn't change it is because our logo actually has the meaning. It's not the name. The logo is a... It looks like an M, but it's actually two mountaintops. Okay. So you're like... So we call ourselves mountaineers. You know, we're summiting the this big problem, like all that fun stuff. <laughs> awesome. I love it. All right. Here's the question that you probably do not want to answer. <laughs> In the State of the Union, President Biden talked about all of the extra annoying fees associated with travel. He was talking about airline fees and resort fees. And it was pretty funny when he said, and some of them aren't even a resort. (laughs) How do you think, do you think that this will impact your business at all? You know, I thought this actually was a great question because it's kind of the problem Mount is addressing when you travel and that you're getting nickel and dimed and you have to pay for all this stuff ahead of time that might end up being a tourist trap. Like that has happened to me personally where I booked like this boat trip and then it it wasn't a boat trip by any local by any means and it was like a, a nightmare. And I was like, am I going to die possibly? Um, <laughs> Boo. So, yeah, I mean, I think Mount, Mount gets around that because travelers are already paying for this stuff. But most of the time you're paying a big company that has come in to disrupt the local economy in the local environment. Like you actually see that a lot in Hawaii with the big hotel chains. They've ruined everything and the locals are very mad for for good reason. But Mount is built so that the locals are the ones supplying the amenities to then use in a very responsible way um, by the travelers. So it's more encouraging like these locals to get involved in the travel community and vice versa. Um, So instead of feeling nickel and dimed, you're actually getting more experiential travel, which is actually what Airbnb set out to do as well. We're kind of finishing what they started. Um, So I look at it more of that way, not nickel and dimed. (laughs) This sounds like a good time to take a break. When we come back, Maddie and I are going to talk about truth and lies in fundraising and what it's like to rent a beater in Hawaii. Be right back. Top Floor is sponsored in part by the Hunter Hotel Investment Conference, taking place March 21st through 23rd at the Atlanta Marriott Marquis. Hunter brings together the hotel industry's most influential leaders and investors for networking opportunities and insightful sessions on hospitality trends. Deals are built on meaningful relationships, and Hunter is where these relationships are made and deals get done. For more information, visit hunterconference.com. We like to make sure that our listeners come away from each and every episode of Top Floor with some practical, tangible tips to try either in their businesses or their lives or both. From your perspective, what is the difference between seed round financing and series A, B, C, et cetera? I know that you just finished your seed round. So is it intended for different purposes than other investments later down the road? Or tell me what you think. Yeah. So the way we're looking at it is seed is really this money is 
is used to solidify the product market fit, make sure we are going after the right customer and figuring out what growth levers we can pull to really grow Mount quickly. So like a growth lever, for example, is like direct to mail or uh, is it these conferences or events we're throwing? We're, we're figuring that out right now. And then once you have all those answers, you we are going to raise our Series A so that we can just pump in the money to really expand on those levers and, and grow Mount exponentially. Um, so we're targeting good growth now, but we should see massive growth by the time we're at Series A uh, because we already know what we figured out. <laughs> what are some of the processes or like what kind of a stress test did you use when you were deciding about these big pivots that you've made in your company? Do you have a process that you can share or was it more driven by intuition and gut feeling? I say it was a little intuition and gut feeling, but really it came down to listening to the customers. I don't think we ever made a pivot that was like something I just was gung-ho about or even my (laughs) co-founder. It was more like the customer was dragging us down that way. Uh, and we just didn't want to fight against it. Um, so that's something I say we always do, but now even more important is like listen to your customer because they will give you the answers. Like they'll tell you what you they want. They won't tell you how to build it, but they'll get you half of the way there. <laughs> I usually steer clear about talking about ages, whether it's for a founder of a company or anybody else. Um, basically because who cares? Like I don't think anyone's ever too old or too young to do anything. So it doesn't make one bit of a difference to me. Um, But I think there is something very instructive about your experience as a younger founder. You know, we've said this before, you basically started the company when you were 12 years old. And that was 13, 14 years ago. So you're still on the younger side for a founder. I'm wondering if investors react to that in any type of way, your team reacts to that in any type of way. And if you have advice for how to deal with those reactions? Oh, that's a good question. Um, For the investors, I've never had a negative reaction. Um, It's actually more positive because they look at what we're building as something that the Gen Z generation wants. I am a Gen Z. So it's like, oh, you're building for yourself. That makes me want to invest more as opposed to someone trying to build something that's not for them. You know, It just doesn't really make sense. Um, In that sense, it's it's been great. Our staff is, or the Mount team is hilarious because we are all a group of these nomadic travelers, half Gen Z, some not, that's not really that important to us, but it's more about like, you know, are you traveling? Are you living the mission of what we're building? So in that sense, age hasn't been quite an issue there. I mean, it is weird for me to be a a boss manager of like 15 people that some are older than I am. Um, And I'm like, oh, hi, (laughs) but no, it works. Um, But I think really where it's helped is in the industry. Because, and you probably have felt this as well, but the hospitality industry is a little old school uh, compared to other industries. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, it's a little slow to evolve. So I think when people see this like young, fresh blood, if you will, come in with these kind of crazy ideas, it's welcomed, um, at least from some people. I mean, there are the people that don't ever want to change, and that's just how it is. But, um, and I think also on the on top of that, being a female founder too is something that's pretty refreshing. So in the industry, I've been actually pretty welcomed um, and helped, you know, like to push Mount and myself forward. I think that there's a lesson there. It's something around 
I have to give you the counter example to what you do, which is when I was 25 or whatever, I was trying to pretend like I was 45 all the time. And I didn't want anyone to know that, you know, when I was a student and I was running a little side hustle, I didn't want people to know I was a student or I don't know. I was just always trying to pretend like I was more experienced and wiser and older than I ever was. And I think that was the dumbest thing I could have done because people feel an emotional attachment to your success. If you just say like, Hey, dude, I've never done this before. What do you think? Versus I know everything. Uh, You can't tell me anything. I was born at the age of 61 or you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one of my advisors told me and I've, I've lived by this, like surround yourself with smarter people because you know, you're not the smartest one in the room. So I've always tried to do that. And I've been very honest. I'm like, I'm just looking for some advice. Like, could you help me (laughs) figure out how you got here and how I can also... Totally. Well, we have reached the fortune telling portion of our show. So now is when we predict the future and then come back later and we'll tell you if you were right or wrong. (laughs) What is a prediction that you have for the future of the so-called sharing economy? Oh man, my prediction there is that a lot of people are going to start owning a lot less. Um, or on the flip side, buying something really fancy to then rent out so they can pay it off. <laughs> Makes sense. Like Uber drivers do that with cars, you know? Exactly. So I think that's definitely where we're headed. I mean, there's always going to be the things you own and you're not going to share them. But I think our generation and the younger generations below us that don't exist yet are probably going to be a lot more conscious to the environment. And I think the sharing economy is one of the answers. Um, let's, let's rent, not own, uh, and travel very light. I mean, I think... This is my really hefty future prediction. Uh, So sorry if it's a little out there, but I do think the sharing economy slash mount has the opportunity to disrupt the way people travel to the point where planes are going to look very different and there will not be space for checked bags and there will be a lot more space for seats. Um, That would be my prediction because you're renting everything in destination. So airlines, watch out. We're coming for you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. If you could wave your magic wand and change one thing about the process of fundraising, what would that be? So this is actually one thing I am trying to do. I think there's a lot of misconception around how the fundraising process works. And it comes from the founders posting on LinkedIn who post the classic oh my gosh, I just raised $5 million in a week. It was so easy. I got Jeff Bezos as my investor and like, I loved it. And then you message them and ask them what really happened. And they're like, oh, it was a nine month to a year slog. I had to build my network. And I'm like, well, then why are you spreading fake news? Because this actually happened to me. I thought it was going to be really easy to raise and it was not. So I'd like to change the misconception founders are spreading to each other because I think it it starts with us. Um, And if we understand how the process works, I call it a game because it is. Uh, If you understand how to play the game, talk to investors because they're also playing the game. They want the biggest return possible at the best price possible. Um, I think we'll flip the narrative and have the power back as opposed to the VCs having all the power and ruining great companies uh, by trying to have you grow way too fast. So that's kind of what I'd like to change. This is late breaking news because I just read this a couple of hours ago before we talked. Um, but some someone posted this chart and I'm not going to get it correct, completely correct, but I'll link to it in the show notes. The bottom line is that VCs are only right 5% of the time. Like ha- what other career or what other job can you keep if you only do a good job 5% of the time? <laughs> Does it make sense, man? What is next for you and what's next for Mount? 
Yeah. So next for me and Mount this year, there's a lot of travel on the the docket because I will be appearing at a lot of conferences to just try and get the Mount brand and name out there and just get a ton more amenities out there for everyone to rent. Um, so that's that's on the docket. We're probably going to hire a few more people as we grow. Um, so yeah, I uh, I think we're we're in for a promising year and then the next uh, next few good ones. <laughs> awesome. Well, before we tell Maddie goodbye, we are going to head down to the loading dock where all of the best stories get told. Going down. Maddie, what is a story you would only tell me on the loading dock? Oh man, this might be a a founder story of um, how Mount really came to be. But uh, basically, I went and lived in Hawaii for three months as a start to to mount and we were in a startup accelerator and me and my co-founder were living in a bungalow. We were trying to really conserve money because we had none. Um, and wait, this, the incubator was in Hawaii. Oh, that sucks. You poor thing. <laughs> I was like, Oh, if only I get out of going to Hawaii. That was, <laughs> <laughs> um, but because we were trying to conserve money, we couldn't rent a car because Hawaiian rental cars are so expensive. So we found my co-founder had a friend on the island and he's like, oh, you can borrow my car, 400 bucks a month. I'm like, "Uh, yes. Like, what's the downside here? Um, Turns out that car was like 25 years old. The wheels felt like they were about to fall off. Like your seat, I don't think was even attached to the car at that point. Like it was hilarious. (laughs) And we're just like rolling down the island in this car. I also learned my co-founder is not a very good driver. So, you know, (laughs) um, but we, he wanted to rent a kayak uh, and we were just on the beach one day and I was like, okay, I'm going to stay on the beach because I'm having a great time, but you go find your kayak rental. <laughs> and he comes back like six hours later. I'm like, did you get lost at sea? Like what is going on? Um, and he comes back with the kayak strapped to the roof of this car that was already falling apart. And he's like, yeah, I couldn't return the kayak. Like the shop was closed. So we have to drive around with it for the next 24 hours. <laughs> oh my God. And we didn't even know how to strap it to the roof. Like it was, it was quite dangerous. I'm like, something bad is going to happen. So we just are like driving the roads of um, Oahu with this kayak. Everyone's looking at us like we're dumb tourists. I'm like, yes, we pretty much are. Like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, but that was kind of how Mount started. Cause I was like, damn, if Mount was here, this my life would be so much easier. <laughs> yes, that's a really good origin story because gosh, if you had had your product, you could just take it back and not have to worry about the timing or open and close hours or whatever. Well, Madison Rifkin, thank you so much for being here. I know that our listeners got some great tips and loved hearing about your company. And I appreciate you writing up to the top floor. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 79. Top Floor is produced by John Albano, who also composed and performed our elevated elevator music with vocals by Cameron Albano. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues after you leave us a five-star review. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode. 